All right, it's time for us to go ahead and get started tonight, please. If y'all come in and find a seat. Also, if you are here tonight and you did not have the opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning and you want to do so, you can make your way to the back to the little chapel uh, on the left side of the foyer as you go out and uh, you'll be served at this time. All right, ready for the books of the Bible? We're missing a few tonight, so we've got to speak up. Be faithful, be faithful unto death, and God, and God. 
complete failure in life. got a good crowd tonight it looks like we also are blessed to have several who are visiting with us and we are so honored that you come our way we want you to, to invite you to come back and be with us anytime you have the chance we will meet on Sunday mornings at 9 30 for worship of course Sunday night at 5 for our Bible classes and on Wednesday night we will meet at 7 and it would just be an honor to have you to come back and be with us i uh, got just a few updates I want to mention. Jim and Janita Estes are down in Indianola today. Jim's been preaching down there, and they've been encouraging the church there. So please remember Jim and Janita in their travels as they travel back uh, this evening. As far as other things that I want to focus on, uh, uh, the Challenge Youth Conference for our youth, the payment is due today, and everyone, and I think some 70 or so, have signed up to go to CYC, you need to meet tonight following our classes right up here in front of the auditorium. Also, let me emphasize that individually wrapped desserts are needed for CYC. If you can help with this, please place them in the snack kitchen by this coming Wednesday, uh, or you can see Dee Worley uh, in regard to that. That's all the announcements that I have tonight. Let us... Uh, uh, bow in a word of prayer, and then we'll have our song for teachers to go to class. Will you bow with me? Our merciful and kind Heavenly Father, we are indeed grateful to you for all the wonderful blessings that you give us. We're so thankful for your grace and your mercy that you give us without our deserving it. Father, there are many people that we know that are on our sick list, uh, those that uh, need our prayers. Please be with each one of those that need our prayers, Father. Be with the doctors and nurses that are tending to their needs. We also, again, Father, ask your blessings upon those who've lost loved ones. We pray that your hand of comfort and consolation would be upon them. And Father, for the church here that meets at Boonville, we're so thankful. We're thankful for our wonderful elders, our deacons, uh, so many here who are involved in various aspects of the Lord's work. And we pray, Father, that we will continue to glorify and honor you uh, in this community in which we live. Most of all, Father, we're thankful for your son, Jesus, who gave his life on the cross for our sins. 
And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Maybe a little bit loud, echoey. Third lesson in our uh, thoughts on corporate worship. And uh, these first three lessons are kind of designed to focus our attention on what worship really is all about. And why is it important that we worship? Beginning, Lord willing, next Sunday night, we're going to talk about how we establish Bible authority. Because I think that's very important, especially when it comes to worshiping God. We need to understand how the Bible authorizes itself. We may spend two lessons on that. And then we're going to begin with the particular, what we call acts of worship. And we'll have one lesson at least on what we would call each act of worship and why we do what we do and the importance of doing that way. So uh, just be patient and uh, we're going to get to all of it, I hope. Uh, hopefully we'll have uh, 
some leeway where we can do some other things depending on what happens with our schedule. <clears throat> a few years ago, I talked to a, a young lady about worship, and she stated that she could never serve a God, she thought, who was so self-centered and demanding that he could not be satisfied until everyone bowed down and served him. She said that she believed that such a demand was a sign of some kind of developmental malfunction in humans, and therefore that would indicate the same of God. Now what this young lady did was she misunderstood completely God's purpose in commanding that we worship. And that's kind of what we want to deal with tonight. You know, God is God, right? Whether we worship him or not. God is not increased just because we worship him. He is not diminished in any way just because we don't worship him. We need to realize that he does not demand worship from us because we need it. Now, we might want to turn over to Acts, the 17th chapter, beginning in verse 24. Uh, I think this is on your lesson sheet tonight. And uh, I want us to kind of begin there. It's really an amazing passage as Paul has come to Athens and he sees all this idol worship here. It's everywhere. The Bible says God who made the world and everything in it. Now you comprehend what that means. Think about what that says. God who made the world and everything in it. I think this basically was what these folks could probably comprehend. They didn't have the advanced technology that we have, you know, about the vast universe and so forth. So in the minds of a lot of people, you know, this world and everything in it was basically, you know, all there really was, you know, in their, in their thoughts. And so Paul said, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temple made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all breath and life and all things. Now, there's a lot encompassed in that passage, right? You know, it's because of God that, you know, you're even alive today. God does not need us. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you in order to be complete. And so why does God demand that we worship? If God does not need us for completion, then, then why did God demand that we worship? Well, I think a partial answer to that question might be supplied in Jesus' statement concerning the Sabbath day. Over in Mark chapter 2 and verse 27. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on that because it's not a part of our subject. But Jesus made a statement that might give us some information here. He said the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. 
Maybe we could substitute the word Sabbath for worship there. Worship was made for man and not man for worship. And although our worship is to God and although it, our worship is to God alone, we need to realize that we are the beneficiaries of this worship. Now, we're going to talk about that in a little more detail, how worship benefits us tremendously. You know, God knew that the nature of mankind is to believe that we're masters of our own fate. It's human nature to believe that, you know, we're captains of our own destiny. And God had us worship to remind us, I believe, that God is a lot bigger than we are. That God is a lot greater than we are. And that our help and that our hope and that our life itself comes from Him and Him alone. You know, we need to think about just how insignificant we are when compared to God. I think about David when he wrote Psalms chapter 8. David was the king of a mighty and powerful nation. One of the wealthiest men in all the world. He could literally have anything that he wanted at the snap of a finger. And yet in Psalms 8 and verse 3, David said, When I consider your heavens, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? What is any man that you visit him? What is any man that you are mindful of him? Truly, you know, a person, a man at his greatest is nothing compared to God. Someone said one time, if you want to know how great you are compared to God, you know, fill a pan full of water, right? And take your finger and put down into that water and then lift it up and see the hole that's left. Truly, we're nothing compared to God, right? Even our greatest. And so God knew that our tendency is to believe that we're masters of our own fate. And God wants us to understand that he is greater than we are. God knew our tendency is to become self-centered. He knew that humans' tendency was to be self-important and selfish. And so it's essential for our welfare that we lose ourselves in the presence and the power and the holiness of God. And from the scriptures, we clearly learn that worship must give glory to God. Now, I want us to look at Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, and maybe not use it as a way that we might normally would to prove that, you know, God only is going to allow that which he authorizes because that's true. But I want us to look at something else here. God records an account here, an event and a principle for our admonition. In Leviticus 10, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire on it, and put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now, stop right there for just a minute. We always you know, go back to that verse and we point out how that, you know, God consumed them with fire because they used fire that God had not authorized, that God had not commanded. 
And uh, we always point to the fact that, you know, when it comes to music in worship today, we have to use only what God has authorized, right? He's authorized singing. He's not authorized other avenues of worship, such as instrumental music. But I want us to see something else here. The Bible says, So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Now, you've got to keep in mind, you know, how's Aaron, the high priest, going to react to this? His sons have just died. But notice here, Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spake, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all people, I must be glorified. After that statement, the Bible says, so Aaron held his peace. I want you to get this here. When Nadab and Abihu offered in worship something that the Lord had not commanded, it was taken by the Lord as a sign of disrespect for his holiness. See, it's a lot more than just not doing what God has authorized. We disrespect the holiness and the righteousness of God when we do that which God has not commanded or authorized. And because Nadab and Abihu did offer fire that was not commanded by God, they showed disrespect and dishonor for the holiness of God. And we need to understand that that's why Aaron held his peace. Now, this story is not told just to fill space or maybe to give us some kind of interesting history lesson. This record and others like it were written for our learning. Over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, the Bible says all these things happen to them as examples. And they're written for, I'm used to Luther over here, you know, filling in for me, the scriptures. But he's not here. He's recovering from shoulder surgery. But they're, they're given for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Again, in Romans 5 and verse 4, the Bible says, Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So these things have been written for a reason. This account of Nadab and Abihu, the account, for example, of Noah and the ark and how God was specific uh, when he said to build the ark out of gopher wood. And, you know, later on when we make some more progress in this class, we'll talk about generic versus specific commands. There's a difference there. and We need to understand that as a part of establishing Bible authority. But as we move on here, I want to talk about four types of New Testament worship. It's four types of worship that are mentioned in the New Testament. The first one is true worship. It's referred to by Jesus in John chapter 4 and verse 23 beginning. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
Now, that word truth is very, very important. You know, the, the truth is objective. There's an objective body of truth that God has given us. You think about what the Bible says in John 8 and verse 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Or sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Or did Jesus, you think about his words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so there is true worship. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Secondly, there's vain worship that's mentioned in the New Testament. Jesus speaks of this type of worship in Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9. He said, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. What's the Lord saying here? He's saying when worship is not from the heart, it is in vain. And we need to understand vain worship occurs when we follow the traditions of men and we ignore the commandments of God. And then the third type of worship is referred to as ignorant worship. Worshiping what we know not or to whom we know not. Uh, when Paul was in Athens, he spoke to the philosophers on Mars Hill. I want you to notice Acts chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. The Bible says, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. You know, these people were known for their superstitious worship. All kinds of pagan gods. There were idols set up everywhere, temples to all kinds of gods here in Athens. And just in case they might have left one out, <clears throat> they had an altar to the unknown God. We don't want to leave anybody out, right? We're going to try to appease all gods. And then Paul said, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. I want to tell you about the true God. I want to tell you about the one God and how you are to worship him. Now, you know, the Bible speaks of zeal without knowledge. And that certainly can get us in a lot of trouble. It's fine to be zealous, but that zeal for God needs to have knowledge behind it. I need to be zealous of good works. I need to be zealous of fulfilling God's purpose and God's will in my life. To be zealous ignorantly is to not only allow myself to go astray, but to lead others astray as well. And so ignorant worship is offered without a knowledge of God's will, it's given without an understanding of who God is and how he desires to be worshipped. The fourth type of worship in the New Testament is will worship or self-imposed worship. 
uh, when Paul wrote the Colossian brethren in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. Notice what he said here. He said, Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom, that is, self-made religion or self-imposed religion, in will worship and in humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. And so Paul said will worship is basically the result of doing what we like. It is doing what we think is good. Will worship is doing what we consider to make sense for us. But although the worship may make sense to us, it may appear to be something very good and beneficial, uh, it's certainly going to be self-imposed worship if it's not taught by God in his word. So these are the four types of worship the New Testament talks about. Now let's switch gears and talk about worshiping in spirit and in truth. I think it's evident that all worship is not acceptable to God. We know that, right? We can see that from these passages. Not all worship is acceptable to God. Now, there are some people today that might accept all kinds of worship, right? Anything you want to do to build them up or put them on a pedestal. Not all worship is acceptable to God. God will only accept, he will only recognize true worship. So the question is, what exactly is true worship? Well, the Lord makes it very clear that it is worship that is in spirit and in truth, John 4, 23 and 24. Let's break that down there. What does it mean to worship God in spirit? Well, I think the scriptures definitely can answer that question for us. Let's look at some of the passages, and I've, I've, I've put these down on, the, on your paper. I didn't write them out, but the, the verses are there. But I want us to look at some of these verses about what it means to worship God in spirit. Think about that word, in spirit. For example, go back to Psalms 51 and verse 10, a familiar passage. David says, Create within me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right Spirit within me. There's the word spirit. Something inside of me. Psalms 51 verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Who is it that God looks down upon and shows favor to? It's the one that is broken up because of his sin. The one that is torn up. And contrite because of his sin, knowing that he's hurt God and he wants to make it right. It's not the one that, you know, thinks he's got it all together and does everything like it should be done. That's not the kind of person that God gives attention to. God gives attention to the one that it's broken up on the inside because of sin and because of recognition of their total and complete dependence on God. 
Then Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7. I probably did at Montgomery. In those 20 years I was there, I did over 200 funerals. And I guess in every, every time we went to the cemetery, I would talk about this passage of Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7. The dust shall return to the earth as it was, but what? The spirit shall return to God who gave it. And then notice the words of our Lord in Matthew 10 and verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, the spirit. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then the last verse I want to look at is 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 11. The Bible says, Paul speaking there, who knows a person's thought, thoughts except the spirit of that person? What am I thinking? Can you read my mind? Aren't you, I'm glad people can't read minds, aren't you? You know, you wouldn't want people to know what you're thinking sometime, would you? Right? So uh, aren't you glad we don't walk around with those little things over our head, you know, with the words there that we're thinking, you know? Uh, like you see in cartoons, aren't you glad we don't have that, right? But the Bible says, who knows the person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, who he is. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, to worship God in spirit, these are the conclusions that we need to reach based upon these passages. To worship God in spirit means that we worship him in the invisible and intangible spirit that is your true self. It's who you are. You are a spirit, right? You happen to have a body right now, don't you? When that body one day decays and go back to the, goes back to the dust, who you are is going to continue to live on. Uh, once you were born, you'll never die again. This body will go back to the dust from whence it came, but who you are, your spirit, will return to God who gave it. And so to worship God in spirit means to worship him in the invisible, intangible spirit that is your true self. It is the place that only you and God know. It is the place where sin occurs and forgiveness occurs. It is the place where hearts are broken and repentance takes place. It is the real you. It cannot be destroyed by time or by accident or by disease. Who you are endures beyond the grave. This is where all true worship takes place. My spirit. In that place, only you and God can see. And if there's no real adoration, if there's no real death to self, if there's no real reaching out to the eternal, then no true worship takes place. Worshiping in the spirit, my intent, my spirit, who I am, my intent to worship God. Well, what does it mean to worship God in truth? Well, again, the word of God has the answer. We note a few more passages, and these are on your paper here. For example, what does it mean to worship God in truth? 
First John, uh, let's look at John 1 and verse 14. Familiar passage. The Bible says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. What truth? Well, look at the passage. Your word is truth. In Ephesians 1, in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him and were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. When we heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, that simply means and encompasses the idea of an obedient faith, right? Biblical faith is not just mental assent. Uh, biblical faith always is an action. Uh, it's something that we do by faith. Moses, by faith, you know, in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, it's always action involved. Now look at 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, and you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. I love 3 John 4. expresses the same idea. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. Now, as we look at these passages here, there are a number of con uh, conclusions there that we can draw naturally. The truth is what Jesus embodied. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The truth is the Word of God. The truth came to us through the preaching and the writing of the apostles and the prophets. And that's another subject for another time, right? Jesus said, I'm going away, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. He's going to come to you. And he is going to bring all things, all of it, to your remembrance. And he's going to inspire you with the truth. And so the truth that was sent through the Holy Spirit was now in the inspired men who gave us an inspired book. And so the word of God came to us through the preaching and the writing of the apostles and prophets it works in those who believe it, and it's more than something that is to be believed. It has to be practiced. And so to worship God in truth, then, is to worship consistently with the character of Christ. And the word that was revealed to us from God by the apostles and prophets, any worship that demeans God's holiness or that ignores his truth revealed in Scripture is unacceptable Worship. That's what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, as we noticed uh, in a previous lesson, the last lesson, worship is worship. Whether it's in the corporate assembly, uh, worship assembly, or privately. 
God doesn't make any distinction in these regards except maybe to note a few rules for keeping order when several people are worshiping together. And uh, this series of lessons, particularly these three introductory lessons, are, are not really designed right now to give an exposition of music or prayer, but I want to make some observations regarding what we just looked at about spirit and truth in regard to uh, maybe music and prayer. I would ask you to consider all that's been said before you reject these principles. Think about this. If it's wrong, if it's wrong to use the instrument in the praise of God in the public assembly, it's also wrong to use the instrument in praise to God in private or small groups. Worship is worship. It must be done in spirit and in truth. Also consider this. If it's wrong for women to lead prayers in the presence of men in the assembly, then it's wrong for women to lead prayers in the presence of believing men anywhere. You see, the rules of prayer apply everywhere, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8. So I want us to understand that God is seeking true worshipers. And let's not allow ourselves to be diverted uh, from his truth. If we're not worshiping according to God's way, we need to change. Now think about it, how this applies today. If what we're doing in worship is what we've always done, maybe we need to be careful. You see, worship, no matter how long it's been practiced, if it doesn't match God's truth, it's vain worship, isn't it? If our reasoning for continue to worship our own way is that, you know, we don't see anything wrong with it, you know, then God raises a warning flag. Worship without knowledge is ignorant worship, according to Acts 17. Or if we persist in our own form of worship because we like it or, or things of that nature, then we need to be aware. Worship that makes sense to us and seems logical to us, but doesn't come from God, is will worship, according to Colossians chapter 3. And if we want to justify practices by saying that you know, they're found in the Old Testament, then what we're doing is we are ignoring the fact that the Old Testament law was only temporary and has been superseded by the new covenant of Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 9. And so I want to admonish you, based upon what we've said tonight, let's approach God, let's approach His holiness with reverence and awe. Let's make up our minds that we are going to worship God in spirit and in truth. That is the challenge that we have. Now, I've got about 10 minutes left here. And you've got something on the other side of your paper here that I kind of wanted to share that might go along with some of this. And uh, it's kind of more practical than anything else. You know, what kind of worshiper are you? This is kind of where it gets close to home. Uh, I want you to consider that on any given Sunday, 
you can find a variety of worshipers assembling with God's people. And just consider some of these devotees. First of all, there is the spasmodic worshiper. You know, he comes whenever he takes a notion, and that's not too often. The least distractions keep him from assembling with the saints. In other words, you don't know if this worshiper is going to come today or not. It just depends on which way the wind blows. Then there is the irreverent worshiper. He whispers, passes notes, occasionally takes a snooze during the worship. Uh, you may find him giving himself a manicure or maybe reading some article he has brought with him as opposed to fully engaging in scriptural worship. That's the irreverent worshiper. We can also find the bored worshiper. The bored worshiper is constantly looking at his watch or the clock on the wall. Uh, this may be accompanied by a yawn or a ho-hum expression on his face. Now, how much longer is this going to last? How much longer? Now, we like the ball games going overtime, right? We don't mind that, unless it's my team playing. Please, no overtime for me. I don't like overtime, you know. But if I'm watching just a game that I don't have a, a dog in the fight, I love overtime, right? Make the game last. I hate these rules they're coming up with to shorten the game. Why shorten something so good, right? You know, why we want to shorten the game? Change the rules. That's just my thoughts. But that's the board worshiper, right? Want to get it over with. Uh, another one to assemble could be called the observant worshiper. Now, this person's constantly looking around. He's curious as to what everybody else is doing. There's not a movement in any part of the building that he doesn't see or try to see. You know, sometimes the biggest distraction in our worship services are the distracted themselves, right? You know, it's not so much the baby starts crying. That may be a distraction. That really is not that much of a distraction. But when all heads turn toward the distraction, the distracted become the distraction themselves. I hope I said that right. I don't know if it came out right or not. <laughs> but anyhow, you know what I'm talking about. All right. Then there is the tardy worshiper. He seems to make it a point to always arrive after the singing's already begun. It almost looks as if he planned it that way. You know, some folks just aren't ever on time. Uh, now, if you're going to be consistent with that in life itself, I guess I'm going to let you get away with it. But if worship is the only place that you're tardy, uh, maybe that says something about one's heart too as well. I know some people are going to have on their tombstone when they die, I'll be there. I'm on my way. <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, we need to be ready and willing to worship. Then there is the worldly worshiper. This worshiper might have been to the dance of the nightclub on Saturday night and then tries to worship God on Sunday morning. Could be that he transacted some shady business deal uh, the week before or failed to tell the truth. Maybe the worshiper is filled with malice or hate toward his fellow man and refuses to speak even to some of his brethren. The Bible says, therefore, you know, if your brother offends you, what do you do? Leave there your gift to the altar. Go and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What if we did that today, truly? You know, we ought not allow 
things to stand between us and our brethren. As we've said when we talked about in the past forgiveness, if I'm not right with my brethren, uh, one of us, maybe both of us are wrong. I had to make sure that I don't harbor grudges or ill will toward anyone without trying to make that right. Because if I don't uh, have a forgiving attitude toward my fellow man, I destroy the bridge over which God's going to forgive me. That's the worldly worshiper. You know, I'm going to come and maybe appease my conscience after a life that I've lived this past week. The last one, though, and seventh, we list the devoted worshiper. Now, this person puts his heart into every act of homage paid unto God that is divinely authorized. He recognizes that he is in the presence of his creator, and he conducts himself accordingly. He is punctual. He's ready to do all things prescribed by God. That is the devoted worshiper. Now, it says here, if we were trying to analyze all these worshipers and seek the reasons behind actions, we would find one difference. The first six were all woefully lacking in one area, namely a love for God. That's the key. If I love God, I'm going to be willing and determined to do what he says. And I'm going to do that with enthusiasm. The devoted worshiper does what he knows he should because God first loved him. And he loves God and his brethren in return. If love for God is the motivation for our worship to him, then we'll have no difficulty finding the time, the necessary effort, and the right attitude with which to worship God. So I guess you could kind of summarize these first three lessons on worship. Corporate worship is our attitude toward worship, how we individually approach worship. It's one thing to get the right actions, right? We want, we want to do that, right? But sometimes we live out one of the most important things as well, and that is, you know, what's on the inside? My spirit, you know, my heart, uh, my desire, my recognition of the power and the mightiness of God. All right, anybody got any questions or comments on this? Feel free to speak up. I'm going to leave... A little bit of room for any comments y'all want to make. Anything we need to clear up before we move on next week. All right, next week, Lord willing. Think about that between now and next week. How do we determine what is acceptable and not acceptable to God? How do I determine what is an, a sinful practice? and what is an acceptable practice, particularly in regards to worship. How do I establish Bible authority? Once we get that straight, then we can move on and be more specific in our acts of worship. All right, I got a couple of minutes left, so I'm going to close with a prayer, and then we can be dismissed. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for the day. We honor you and praise you for all that you do for us. We recognize, as Paul did, that it's in you that we live and move and have a very being. Father, again, we ask your blessings upon those that are sick. There are many of our number, Father, that have undergone surgeries, that are going through difficult times uh, physically. We pray that your hand of healing would be upon them. Father, we also recognize that, that there are those that continue to grieve over the passing of loved ones, 
May we put our faith and hope and trust in you during those difficult times. Most of all, Father, may we glorify and honor you by the way that we live. And as we worship you from time to time, may we worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.